Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infused throughout your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature godlike, massive, superintelligent machines and plankton. The Singularity Summit Australia is a meeting where scientists, engineers, and philosophers can cast their imagination forwards to speculate about things to come. Hugo de Garris started life as a theoretical physicist but moved into artificial intelligence. He's designed artificial brains with evolvable hardware. His artificial brains use genetic algorithms to evolve neural networks using three-dimensional cellular automata inside film programmable gate arrays. He owns a lot of patents. At the Singularity Summit in Melbourne, Hugo de Garris spoke to me about the subject of his first book, The Artelect War. Cosmists versus Terrans, a bit of controversy concerning whether humanity should build godlike, massively intelligent machines. His last project was running the artificial brain lab for Xiaomen University in China. Now I'm retired, but uh, a few months, you know, just recently, a few months back, I was director of the artificial brain lab at Xiamen University in China. I was uh, building, building China's first artificial brain basically evolving neural networks very fast in the latest hardware and putting tens of thousands of them together to make artificial brains to control robots to do interesting things. Five years ago I wrote a book called The Artelect War uh, and to explain what an artelect is. It's short for artificial intellect and it's a, a future godlike massively intelligent machine. And if you look at the physics of computation, you, you can come to the conclusion these machines eventually, in future decades this century, could have capacities literally trillions of trillions of times above the human level. Now, I understand superintelligent. Can you explain a bit more why it's godlike in superintelligence? Well, just as the sheer numbers. I mean, it, it, for example, it would think like a million times faster than we would because it would be thinking at electronic speeds like our computers. Whereas our human brains, we, th we think at chemical speeds, which is like, what, maximum 100 metres a second. Whereas electronic speeds, it's the speed of light, which is you know, a million times faster. So they could have virtually unlimited memory. They, they could redesign themselves. They, they could perform experiments on parts of themselves, evolutionary-type experiments, look at the results, and if they were superior to, to the rest of them, then they could then incorporate that superiority into themselves and restructure themselves, and all this at the speed of light, right? So... So th these creatures would be absolutely incredible, amazing. So given that the technologies that are coming this century, I believe, I'm almost certain, so humanity then is faced with an enormous political, ethical question. Do we, you know, we as a human species, do we want to become number two? Do, do we allow these machines to, to dominate us? Some people say, well, how about human beings themselves? Uh, become these godlike creatures, uh, these, these artilects, as, as I call them. So you can imagine people adding components to their heads and you know, becoming artilects themselves. And, that, and that's certainly an, an option. A lot of people will do that. Uh, the thing is that 
the, the computing capacity, even of say of a grain of sugar, is so fantastically superior to that of a of a human being, human brain, that very quickly uh, any any cyborg there's, there's another new word cybernetic organism. In other words, part part machine, part part human. Yes. So these 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 cyborgs uh, effectively would just would just become artifacts. Probably the, the scenario I, I see is the most realistic. What, what's going to unfold is that um, ten years from now, uh, a lot of us will have home robots controlled by artificial brains. I mean, today, the research field of artificial brains is booming. Uh, Moore's law. Moore's law says that. Uh, the number of the number of transistors you can cram onto a chip keeps doubling every year and a half or so, and that that trend has been true for about 45 years, and it's likely to be true for another 10 years or more. So uh, by around 2020, you'll uh, you'll be putting a single bit of information on one atom. So th then you start asking yourself, well, if I hold an apple in my hand. How many, how many atoms is that? So how many bits, if, if it were suitably processed? Well, the answer is about a trillion trillion. And then you ask, well, how quickly could these, these, uh, these atoms flip from a zero to a one? And the answer is about a femtosecond. Well, what's that? Well, let's say roughly it's uh, a thousandth of a trillionth of a second. So imagine then you had this apple and it's, it's been processed so that every bit's behaving like a like a little computer, like you know, an atom, uh, a bit switcher, zero, one, zero, one, zero, and very, very fast. So the bit processing capacity of that apple is a trillion, trillion, that's the number of atoms, times the number of times it can flip back and forth in a second. Well, that's sort of a femtosecond. So you, you do the math, and you end up with a huge figure like 10 to the power 40, roughly. Now, if you ask a similar question, well, what about the human brain? What, what's its processing rate? Well, there's roughly 100 billion neurons, that's brain cells, in the brain. Each one of those roughly connects to about 10,000 others. And each connection, the connection is called a synapse in brain science. So each synapse uh, can communicate roughly about 10 bits per second maximum. So you do that math and you end up with something like 10 to power 16. Now remember those two numbers. Before, the apple, the apple was 10 to the 40. And the human brain's about 10 to the power 16. That's a difference of 10 to the 24. That's a trillion trillion. So in other words, what we're saying is the, the technology of the near future, the, you know, the next few decades, potentially could create creatures that have computational capacities a trillion trillion times superior to the human brain. Now you may say, well, that's not artificial intelligence. That's just massive bit processing rates, and and of course, uh, yeah, that's true. So uh, remember those two numbers. So the bit processing rate of the human brain is about ten to the power sixteen, and the apple was about ten to the power forty. Yes. So that's a difference of ten to the power twenty-four. That's a trillion trillion, or if you like, a million 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 times superior. Now. Uh, Having a, having a device that can flip bits very fast, that's, that's not massive intelligence. So how do you get massive intelligence? Well, there are various ways, but probably the common sense way is simply to copy the brain. I mean our brain, our human brain. So neuroscience is jumping ahead in leaps and bounds. So uh, you know, every, every month there are major discoveries on how the brain functions. 
And, and because of Moore's law, uh, all these new electronics create new tools for investigating the brain. So it sort of feeds back on each other. So uh, more and more uh, neuroscience guys can give their ideas to the neuroengineering people. So, so eventually the, the two fields will virtually wed. So, so like practical physics and theoretical physics, they're virtually one subject. Didn't been that way for, for a while. So neuroscience and neuroengineering will become one. And then you'll get increasingly brain-like computers. Now, for example, IBM in, uh, in New York is, is heavily into this now. They, they talk about cognitive computing, right? Because they, they, they see this huge market coming. The, the Korean government is crazy promising its population that by about 2020, they want to, the government wants, wants to put a, a home robot in every Korean household. And of course, these home robots would be controlled by artificial brains, you know, brain-like machines. And they would be genuinely useful, increasingly intelligent. And Bill Gates, everyone knows, uh, he's on record saying by, by the year more or less 2030, uh, the home robot industry, controlled by artificial brains, will be one of the biggest and richest industries in the world. And the reason for that is, uh, I mean, ask yourself, how much, how much would you individually be prepared to pay for a genuinely useful, intelligent home robot that, that could walk the dog and wash the dishes and clean the house and wash the clothes? And, you know, people would be prepared to pay big money, more, more money than for a car. So, so obviously a huge industry. Okay, next step. So imagine, you know, jump ahead 10, 15, whatever years, and imagine now that uh, you get a call from your your friend, the next door neighbor, who says, hey, come over and look at my latest home robot. So you, you go next door and you're very impressed and the, and the robot starts joking with you and it, its vocabulary is like three times richer than the previous model and, and so on and so forth. So you're very impressed, so you too go out and ditch your old model and buy a new one. Now, after doing this a few times, uh, you and a billion other people on the planet are noticing that the, the, the so-called IQ gap, you know, the, the difference between human-level intelligence and, and these artificial brain-based uh, home robots, their level of intelligence, that gap is closing. It's getting smaller and smaller. So people then start, uh, you know, millions, of, millions of people start asking the obvious questions. Well, are we going to let these machines become as intelligent as human beings? Is, is that a good thing? Uh, could they become more intelligent than we are? Is that a good thing? I mean, could we stop it? Should we stop it? Big major questions like this. And so in time, I see this, I call it the species dominance issue. I see this issue dominating our global politics this century. More of Hugo de Garris a little later in the show. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. You can send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Lachlan Watmore. They say the sea was once a soup that gave birth to life. Well, guess what? It still is. The ocean surface waters are basically an aqueous solution of life in more ways than one. When I was young and stupid, 
I was charged with collecting some seaweeds for a certain school I was working for, so that the kids would know the difference between chlorophytes, firefights and rhodophytes, known more commonly as green algaes, brown algaes and red algaes respectively. No worries, I thought, and repaired to my local rock platform, where I happily tore specimens of seaweed from the rock with the thought of being arrested for not having a collection permit the last thing on my mind. Now, these things will need some seawater to sit in, I said to myself, and filled up two 20-litre reservoirs with the stuff. Back at the lab, I set up the three exhibits in broad, shallow glass dishes, each containing about 15 litres of now slightly less than fresh seawater, with a presentation style worthy of a museum, the specimens nicely lit with those cheap little lamps from the Education Department Supply Depot, and some neatly written information cards for years 11 and 12 to learn about algae. That was on a Saturday morning. And of course, come Monday, the whole place smelled like one of those piles of kelp that's been pushed up past the high tide mark and left to rot for a month. Seawater is, of course, just like blood. It's full of living cells. And when those cells are taken out of their normal nourishing environment, they die and thus stink. I was very lucky not to get fired. <laughs> To call seawater the blood of the earth, or at least of her biosphere, isn't as romantic as it sounds. Where blood has red cells, white cells, immigrant bacteria, and the occasional metabolite of something a little bit naughty, seawater is the home of zooplankton, phytoplankton, marine bacteria, marine viruses, marine funguses, the occasional slick of oil from naughty people, and a whole lot more. Plankton are marine organisms that drift with surface currents with little to no control over where they go. Every cubic centimetre of seawater contains millions of organisms. Most marine invertebrates, such as crabs, corals and crinoids, spend their larval phase in the plankton. So do many species of fish, whose eggs mature in the ocean currents, the same place where krill bloom in the millions and keep the humpbacked visitors to the Australian east coast fat and happy. The plankton community is a world all by itself, living and growing and being eaten in equal massive measure, covering seven-tenths of the planet's surface to a depth which is variable, depending on conditions. The foundation of the plankton, the source of primary production, and half of the oxygen produced on the Earth is the phytoplankton. Let me repeat that. Half the oxygen produced on this planet is made by phytoplankton. The phytoplankton are defined as the autotrophic component of the planktonic community. What this means is that they make their own food, usually by photosynthesis, and don't graze or prey on some other poor bugger. This noble, selfless and indescribably important group doesn't just include plants but also the cyanobacteria, more commonly called blue-green algae, which is neither a plant nor a bacterium, the diatoms, which we can't decide are plants or should be put into their own kingdom, and the dinoflagellates, which are definitely plants, we think. Here's the scary part. Phytoplankton is under serious threat. A team led by PhD student Daniel Boyce from Dalhousie University in Canada has analysed decades of data recording and has concluded that phytoplankton levels have dropped worldwide by 40% since 1950. The precise reasons for this are unclear. One model suggests the increased stratification of the water column, which isolates a warm surface layer above a cold, deep one, and doesn't allow much mixing across the boundary or thermocline between them. 
Phytoplankton, like all life, need nutrients, especially minerals such as nitrates and iron. These nutrients are found in abundance in deep cold water, which enriches the upper water column in mixing events called upwelling. However, the lack of mixing leaves the phytoplankton with a nice warm sunlit habitat, but without a thing to eat. I should say at this point that these data are very general, and some areas, for example the Indian Ocean, buck the trend and show a phytoplankton increase. However, given the importance of phytoplankton as Mother Earth's green blood cells, it's about time some more attention was paid to this vital component to life on Earth. So stay tuned. In the weeks to come, I'm going to present some family portraits. Lachlan Watmore reports from his favourite place in the whole wide beautiful world and the crisis facing phytoplankton. Hugo de Garris has published two books this year, Multis and Monos, What the Multicultured Can Teach the Monocultured Toward the Creation of a Global State. And also, Artificial Brains, an Evolved Neural Net Module Approach. Once millions and probably even billions of people in you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now will be asking these questions. And then the next stage will be this species dominance debate. In other words, you know, should human beings build artifacts or not? That question will, I see, dominating our global politics this century. So then you can imagine people will take sides. Some people will say, you know, building these super creatures, these godlike creatures, is almost a kind of religion. Not, not a traditional religion, and it's, it's, you know, these beliefs, these ideas are based on science, modern science. So you, could, you can almost label it a kind of science-based new religion. So I've coined a, a couple of labels to label these human groups. The people who want to build these artifacts, a sort of god-builder. So that group I, I label cosmists. That's based on the word cosmos, because that's their perspective, you know, the, 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 the big picture. You know, we, we live in a universe with trillion, trillion stars. You know, the, our pathetic little human lives that get snuffed out in a mere 80 years in a universe that's billions of years old. That, that, that kind of thinking. So label them cosmists. So the, the ideology would be cosmism. Now the other group, I label them the Terrans. That's Terra, the Earth, because that's their perspective, much, much narrower. And uh, the top priority for the Terrans, in other words, the people who are opposed to building these artifacts, their greatest motivation would be fear. Fear that Perhaps one day, if these artifacts came into being, they, they may become so superior to human beings that they may consider us as nothing. I mean, by analogy, the way we walk around the carpet and we kill bacteria at every step, and we don't give a damn because they're bacteria and we're humans. We feel ourselves so superior to those bacteria, we, you know, they're nothing to us. So it's an easy, obvious analogy that if these artifacts became literally trillions and trillions of times you know, greater capacity than we have, then maybe, maybe they, they may feel the same about us and just not give a damn about us. I mean, maybe they'll either consciously try to exterminate us for, for whatever reason, maybe for reasons we don't even, you know, we'd never understand because we're too stupid. We're just so humanly stupid compared to them. Or maybe just as a kind of side effect, they may decide to do something, for example, get rid of all the oxygen. And, and, and you know, as a side effect, we, we get destroyed and they, not, they're oblivious. You know, they, they, they're just so superior to us. It'd be like us not caring about rocks or something, that, that, that kind of analogy. Then the species dominance debate heats up. And especially as that, uh, that IQ gap between human level and robot level, machine intelligence level, as that gap closes, then the debate will rage. Because what's at stake here? 
on, on the one hand, the, the cosmos are arguing, well, this is a kind of God building. This is like the next major step in evolution. There's a whole universe out there. I mean, you know, the big picture. And on the other hand, you've got the, the Terrans saying, well, the most important thing to human beings is our survival. And so in the limit, when push really comes to shove, if, if these cosmos uh, are genuine about building these artifacts, then in the limit, the, the Terrans would be, be, just be prepared to kill them. Right? Just to, it, it's, they, will, they will argue that it's the lesser evil to wipe out a few million cosmos for the sake of the survival of billions of human beings. Right? So you have two very powerful murderously opposed ideologies and, and I see these two ideologies conflicting each other to the same extent historically speaking as what happened in the 19th and 20th centuries when, when you had the communist and capitalist ideologies uh, over the issue of who should own capital who, who should own the factories and the machines all, all that production should they be privately owned or owned by everybody, communally owned, or basically communism. And we almost destroyed ourselves in a potential World War III in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Today, this species dominance issue, it sounds like science fiction. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for people to imagine some creature that would be like a trillion, trillion times above us in, in mental capacities, thinking, thinking a million times faster, like doing a PhD in minutes, you know, this, this kind of thing. Virtually unlimited memory, uh, unlimited senses, uh, it could go anywhere, turn itself into whatever form it wanted, change its architecture in seconds, uh, just, just this godlike creature. So a lot of people will want to do that. Now, there's a third group, and you can call them the cyborgs or the cyborgists. They're the people who want to become artifacts themselves by, by simply adding components to their own brain and so forth. So uh, bit by bit, uh, deliberate pun, they, <laughs> they become artifacts themselves. But very quickly, I mean, there's, for example, there's more computing capacity in a, in a grain of sugar, if, mm -hmm. if, you, if you calculate it, compared to the human brain by, I don't know, billions, trillions, something like that. So very quickly, a cyborg, that's part, part machine, part mm. human, a cyborg very quickly becomes an artifact, and, and the, the proportion of its nature that's human is negligible, absolutely drowned and swamped by, by this vastly superior computational capacity of the technology. So I see the, the Terrans, they're the people who are opposed to the artifacts being built. I see, I see the Terrans just simply lumping the cyborg guys, or the, you know, the cyborgs, and the artifacts into the same camp. They, they will be bitterly opposed to them. Now, uh, Ray Kurzweil, a famous guy, a futurist in America, he's criticized the scenario that I'm giving. He's saying, Hugo, and that's me, if, uh, if it came to a war between the Terrans and uh, the Artilex, or the Terrans and the Cosmists, then it would be sort of like a war between the US Army and the Amish. I don't know if your listeners know. The, for, for, for listeners who don't know who the Amish are, they're a religious sect in America, and part of their religion, ideology, whatever, is to not use any technology more recent than 19th century. So literally, they ride around in horse and buggy. They don't use telephones or internet, you know, that kind of thing. So that they live in the 19th century. So of course, <laughs> as the Americans say, no contest, right? Okay. Now, in a sense, I agree with what Ray Kurzweil is saying. If the Terrans do nothing, 
If they just sit around and wait. So if they just sit around waiting, then the artifacts come into being, the cyborgs come into being, and then it would be no contest because the human beings would then be vastly superior. Okay, now with this logic, therefore, the Terrans will argue they have a time window of opportunity. They cannot wait too long. If they do, they're doomed. Or maybe. You know, the, the, the risk then is there because then the artifacts would exist and then maybe they would like swat, swat us like that's, we swat mosquitoes. Maybe, maybe treat us as best. Now, maybe not, but you're not going to take the risk, right? The risk is too great. You're talking about the potential extermination of billions of human beings. No politician is going to accept that risk. So the Terrans will be ruthless. If the Cosmets are dead serious about going ahead and, and building these godlike creatures, these artifacts, then I see a war coming between the Terrans and the Cosmists. And this ideological difference, this bitter, murderously dangerous uh, confrontation, I believe will happen in the second half of this century, given, given the timing. That was Hugo de Garris at the Singularity Summit in Melbourne, discussing whether we will build godlike, massively superintelligent machines and what the possibility means for us all. He is hoping that the discussion of the possibility of an artelect war doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can hear part three in the coming weeks. And that's all from us, this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Lachlan Watmore. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.